0: Good morning. If you are a guest with us, we've been studying through 1 Peter. You should be able to find 1 Peter on a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you did not bring one with you, somewhere around page 1014. Uh, But this morning will be a slightly different type of sermon. We will go into the text, but there will be some reflections that come out of the text a little sideways. Uh, For our members here, we're actually spending an additional week in the passage that we studied last week. Uh, The elders and I had agreement this past week that it might be wise for us, some because I was lamenting that I did not focus on verses 17 and 18 as much as I wish I would have last week, and then some in light of what has taken place in our nation and in our denomination in the last week. So we're going to focus our attention on chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. We think that that will help us recenter as we move into chapter 5 and consider what a pastor is, what we're to look for, what we should identify in a shepherd of God's church, as our pastor Nick prayed for us just a few moments ago. Our time together today will be greatly helped by you following along in a Bible and keeping open the whole time. First Peter chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 16. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Let's pray. Father, as the Puritans said, I am desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long for your people to be uplifted with grace and unction, and ask that you would help now in these moments. Help us as we turn our attention to your word. Help us as we remind ourselves of the coming judgment. Help us as we remind ourselves that the believer is purified, sanctified, refined through the sufferings and trials of this life. Help us and stir our affections afresh for the sake of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, now that you might encourage us We come in here needing to be encouraged. The concerns and burdens of the world around us are heavy. And Father, often we are hiding our pain from one another. We pray that you would build us up from your word. We pray that today we would leave this place reminded that you have dealt decisively with sin on the cross and that all who trust in your Christ will be forgiven of their sin. We pray that we would be encouraged as we remind ourselves from your word that you have dealt decisively with sin and you will come again and you will deal with sin for the final time. You will wipe away every tear. Lord, we ask that you would help us now and we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Last summer, our church sent three members to represent Christ Church at the 2021 Southern Baptist Convention meeting. While there, our members joined representatives from many other churches to call for an independent investigation of how the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee had handled allegations of sexual abuse by leaders in churches that cooperate with the Southern Baptist Convention. This investigation, carried out by an organization called Guidepost, last Sunday, released their findings on May 22, 2022. Guidepost released an independent report of the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee, and if you read it, the report is devastating. It is all public and it is online. It describes a deeply concerning and heartbreaking pattern of stonewalling and actively working to discredit sexual abuse survivors, of working against reform, and in one case, of sexual abuse of a former Southern Baptist Convention president in 2010. To say the least, these sins are terrible. And they betray the trust of the most vulnerable. They prioritize self-protection over justice. They dishonor God. They dishonor the church. And they put the church in danger. Since the report was released last week, one of the questions reverberating in my mind has been, will not a righteous God judge these things? The crimes and the atrocities revealed in the report by guidepost have led me to turn that question over and over again in my mind. Will not a righteous God judge these things? Where is this righteous God? Every headline I read about yet another sexual abuse victim coming forward, testifying to abuse by the victim's famous pastor, and the church that willingly covered it up or allowed it to be covered up, not a righteous God judged these things. You know that I could go on because you know the crimes. You know the horror of the things that we cannot think too long about without shutting down for a day. A few years ago, Tim Grierson captured this type of feeling well when he wrote, being angry all the time is exhausting and corrosive. Not being angry at all feels morally irresponsible. But while the stain and strain of this anger-inducing sins infuriates all of us, there is at least one benefit. We are finally in a place where we can see the goodness of Peter's teaching in chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God's judgment has begun for the believer whose salvation is costly and for the unbeliever whose salvation is dire. Notice first, God's judgment has begun. Look with me again in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. All the verses 17 and 18 are actually an argument for why you can glorify God without being ashamed when you're suffering as a Christian. We have repeatedly made mention of the distinction between suffering as a Christian for being a Christian because you affirm the name of Christ and suffering for sin. All of verses 17 and 18 are helping us see how you can glorify God without being ashamed when you're suffering as a Christian. So these verses could actually be read like this. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name because it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter, in verse 17, actually reaches back into the suffering of verse 16 and helps us see that the suffering of believers is the beginning of God's judgment. Verse 17 beginning from the household of God. A phrase that actually comes to us from the Old Testament, where God's house is God's temple. The place of His judgment begins there. If you have your Bible, I want you to flip over to Ezekiel chapter 9. If you don't know where Ezekiel is, just nudge the person beside you and ask them to help. Ezekiel chapter 9. If they don't know, look to the table of contents. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. Part of the reason I want us to see this is to see how these phrases come to us in Peter's writing from these passages. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Beginning from his sanctuary, the temple, The prophet tells us the Lord judges the sinners in Israel. But even though the language is similar between Ezekiel chapter 9 and 1 Peter chapter 4, the theology between Ezekiel chapter 9 and 1 Peter chapter 4 is a little different. In Ezekiel, the sinners are destroyed. But in 1 Peter, the judgment does not involve the destruction of the godly, but the refinement and purification of the godly. What he's wanting them to see is that their suffering is something that actually prepares them for what is before them. The theology of 1 Peter is actually closer to another passage in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Turn there with me now. If you don't know where that is, find Matthew's Gospel, turn back a page. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. The prophet tells us the Lord will come to his temple, and he will refine and purify his people, and then... After he has refined and purified his people, as in the days of old, the offerings of his people will be acceptable. Or as Peter tells us, the sufferings and the sorrows of the righteous are actually designed in God's providence to purify, to refine, so that the believers will receive their final reward. We've seen it all throughout Peter's letter here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why are you grieved by the various trials? Why do you rejoice in the various trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith. That's what is happening when we're tested in trials, when we're suffering, when we're going through hardship. There is a testing of the genuineness of our faith. Peter knows what is true of these people is the same thing that is true of us and the same thing that is true of all of God's people. In the suffering, we're tempted to think that God is not real, that the faith is fake, that something is off, that we actually did not receive the promises. We did not repent rightly. Something has gone wrong. So Peter says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. When the sufferings are there, they're testing the genuineness of your faith. Faith that is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. The most precious metal, it's more precious than that because that perishes. This will never fade. May it be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even though God's household is the temple in the Old Testament, we see as we read through 1 Peter that Peter conceives of the church, God's people, as his temple. The new people, the temple of God. The church is, chapter 2, verse 5, a spiritual house. That is to be a holy priesthood. It is a holy priesthood that should offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's how we approach God. So that, chapter 2, verse 9, they may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the purpose of what God is doing. He's distinguishing these people. He's setting them apart. They are to be a holy people. And as a holy people, they are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them. So when they're living unholy lives, they're actually preaching a false gospel. Which is why there's the exhortation to holiness throughout 1 Peter. You want to be great evangelists? Yes, preach the gospel and live holy lives. One of the themes throughout 1 Peter... We've said it over and over again. The good deeds of believers are, you can finish it by now, intended for mission. That's what's taking place in Peter's writing here, encouraging the people to be a holy people. And as Peter tells us, the judgment that begins with them, God's household, purifies those who truly belong to God. And that purification makes them morally fit for their inheritance. The verse 17, judgment for them, and this is where it's hard. Sometimes we have to do the deeper Bible study. When we think of judgment, we only think of condemnation, but that's not what Peter is doing here. Peter says the judgment that happens for them is disciplinary. It's not condemnation. It's not punitive. It's not penal. It's disciplinary. It's purposeful. It's not purposeless. On the contrary to what the believers might think In those moments or feel in those moments, unbelievers are not getting away with anything and they don't need to be frustrated. And why would Peter want to tell them that? Because they're prone to think, what is the point of keeping this faith at all? Look how we suffer. We're trying to live morally upright lives. And these people who are living depraved, ungodly, obviously wicked lives are getting away with it and they get to enjoy life. And we, we suffer and we don't have all of the things that we want. Peter wants them to know, nobody's getting away with anything and you are being purified through the trial. Chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, which is God's people. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter helps us see that even... If God's saints must endure judgments, think of the judgments that await unbelievers who mock and persecute, who belittle and oppress, who make fun of and abuse His people. Isn't that really what all of our anxiety and disquiet is about often on weeks like this? Are we not very much like, Nick read for us, Jeremiah, wondering, why does the wicked prosper? Another headline of the wicked prospering. Why do all the faithless people live at ease and have it at least for the majority of their life the way that they want it? Are we not plagued with the suspicion that nothing is ever going to go right? That no matter how we live or how we obey or what we do, and no matter where we are, the powerful will just keep getting away with it that the violent will actually just keep grinding the weak into dust that even though some get caught as they were this week there will be a great many people who still prosper because they know how to use the system they know how to pervert the law they know how to work everything to their own advantage are not our fears the same fears as the psalmist when we're reading the old testament who worries that the Lord is actually hiding himself in times of trouble. Where are you? At these moments, Peter knows our hearts need a God who names, judges, and punishes sin. We need a God to whom we can call, as the psalmist did, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted, in confidence that that God will answer. We need a God who is beginning with his household, and will judge for these things. God's judgment has begun, notice second, for the believer whose salvation is costly. Look with me again at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be, come, be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The judgment, verse 17, begins with us which means that it commences with Christians. And if we're honest, the fact that sinners seem to get away with their sin is not the only source of our anxiety and disquiet. It does frustrate us. It annoys us. It makes us upset. It makes it hard to read the Bible. It makes it hard to understand the Bible in light of the newspaper. Because just as overwhelming flood of news may fill us with righteous anger at injustice, it also engulfs us with thousands of different ways that we Christians have been complicit with injustice we might not repeat racist jokes but we don't say much when we hear them and we might not have been the people here that have taken advantage of other people sexually but a great many people here have watched porn and that industry does we might not be the ones stealing from others and our neighbors but we are certainly people who keep back things for ourselves that we know that we could give away to benefit other people We might not own a gun, and we might think other people should never own a gun. But we harbor hate and unforgiveness in our heart to such a degree that we actually justify ourselves in thinking that it's okay to alienate ourselves from people that we don't want to forgive because it's too hard to have a conversation. As one pastor noted, we are enmeshed, as the Book of Common Prayer says, in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. After an emotionally exhausting, draining week from the SBC report to Uvalde, Texas, I have a hunch that there is a nagging sense of culpability for almost all of us in the room. That some of our most angry thoughts and engagement actually stem from the fact that we know that people are guilty because we feel that guilt ourselves. Many of us are on a quest, a quest that we often don't realize, we refuse to admit. To not only justify ourselves, but to atone for our sins by being angry enough at the things taking place around us. And as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if we can spot the sins and hypocrisies of our neighbors, however subtle or, or uh, they may be to the untrained eye, or the sins and hypocrisies of those in denominational le- leadership or local law enforcement, however blatant it may be, then we might be just maybe. Not as guilty as we might feel ourselves to be. So we work for good, but not just because it's right. We don't call out just because we know that was wrong and it should never happen. We do it because we actually feel complicit in some small ways. We've turned a blind eye when we shouldn't have. Our very sense of self is on the line because we want to be in the right so that they can obviously be in the wrong. But as we see, as we read the Old and New Testament, in the back of our minds are words like these from the psalmist. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? It is so easy to point at the headline and say, I told you so, I knew it, and never look in the mirror and say guilty. In an age where we waver, weekly, daily, hourly, between outrage and guilty consciences, Peter has helped us see throughout his letter that we must remind ourselves of how costly our salvation was. That's why the judgment begins with us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. He is the Savior, but he is also our example. Why? So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Friends, the scripture tells us the Son of God added human nature to himself to live the life that we could not live. And died the death that we all deserve to die. So that by the means of his substitutionary work on the cross for us, in our place where he bore the wrath that we all deserved, we might be forgiven and not only forgiven, but actually have assurance of sins forgiven, be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another so that we might live differently in this life. Brothers and sisters, our salvation was costly. And we have to remind ourselves that our salvation was costly. We have to live in light of a costly salvation, throwing off sin, putting on righteousness, not quickly just pointing the finger, but reminding ourselves that we are all guilty. And the reason that we point out is injustice is because we know that we too are those people who are guilty. We proclaim to these people, yes, they deserve judgment for their sins. Yes, they should be held accountable by the law. Yes, they must repent because they too have souls that will never die. God's judgment has begun for the believer whose salvation is costly. Notice third, for the unbeliever whose salvation is dire. Look again in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, or probably a better way to say it is saved with difficulty, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Unbelievers, notice how they're described by Peter in verse 17. They are described as those who do not obey the gospel of God. Peter could have easily highlighted that judgment is falling on unbelievers because they disbelieve the gospel of God, because of their unbelief in the gospel of God. But instead, Peter pauses and he says something slightly different, perhaps maybe what we're not expecting. Instead, he highlights that judgment is falling on them because they do not obey the gospel of God. An idea that occurs on three other occasions in this letter. First Peter, chapter two, verse eight. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble not because they do not believe the word but because they disobey the word. They live contrary to the word. They know what the word says, and they don't do what the word says. They have heard what the word says, and they don't care what the word says. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. How do we know that they're unbelieving husbands? because they're not doers of the word. They might be people who profess to be believing husbands, but they are obviously not believing husbands because they do not obey the word, helping us see that it doesn't matter what anybody in the room says. You might say, I'm a Christian, and you disobey God's word, and you are proving that you are not who you say that you are. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. The spirits in prison did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. We'll talk about the spirits in prison another time. If you have a question, pick up a commentary, find me in the tunnel afterwards. But the point is, is that they did not obey the gospel of God. Those who are judged or will be judged are described as those who disobey the gospel. They hear the message, repent. They hear the message, believe. They hear the message of repentance and belief requires conformity. If you want to see conformity in the New Testament, spend the rest of your afternoon in the best way possible by beginning with the Pauline epistles and just reading through them. And one of the things you will see is that Paul is constantly saying to believers at the end of his books, put off an old way of life, put on a new way of life. Stop doing these things because that is what you did in your ignorance or in your former manner of life or when you were not a Christian. And now as a Christian, do these things, put on these behaviors, live this way in the world. He's making a distinction, not just by what they profess, but how they live in the world. Or if you don't wanna read all of the Pauline Corpus, go read the book of James. James says the exact same thing, be doers of the word. It's not just enough to say you're saved by faith, you must be saved by faith. But you are, if you are not saved by faith and works, you are not saved, then what is he trying to say? That the two go together. He's not saying something different than Paul. He's saying that you will see them by their fruit. Those who are judged or will be judged are described as those who disobey the gospel of God. Their unbelief is actually made manifest by their disobedience. But believers, on the other hand, are characterized differently throughout 1 Peter, aren't they? 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Notice how he speaks to them. He calls them elect exiles, and he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Well, 1 Peter 1, verse 14. Notice how he speaks to them. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children do not be conformed. And then throughout the book, he tells us what obedient children look like. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is opposed to those who do evil. It's not just that God's wrath comes on them. This should startle all of us in the room for all of the sin in all of our lives. God actively opposes the evildoer. He stands against them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. How do they live? Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you, notice that there's a distinction now in behavior. You do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That's how you know. You don't live like them. When you live like them, you're one of them. Believer, do you live like them? Or perhaps professing, so called alleged believer, do you live like them? Peter did not specify what judgment awaits the unbeliever, but it is very clear if we just look at chapter 5 of verse 4, or or chapter 4 of verse 5 that he has clearly taught that this is final judgment, where they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. As in Malachi, those who do not repent are judged. And it is a truth that Peter reinforces and restates with this proverbial statement. In verse 18, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter is not saying that the righteous are barely saved or that there's an uncertainty for the righteous. Rather, what he does is he quotes Proverbs 11:31, 31, and he highlights that the righteous are saved with difficulty. And the difficulties that he envisions in context is the sufferings that they endure on their way to full salvation. They are certainly saved now. They are one of God's children right now. But it doesn't feel like that existentially to them right now. They've professed faith in Jesus Christ. They've hoped in the Savior, and yet they are in sadness and sorrow. They are suffering in this life. They are awaiting the outcome of their faith, and chapter 1 tells us, the salvation of their souls, and that is with great difficulty. The godly are saved through suffering. They're saved from God's wrath through suffering. And if that's the case for the Christian that's the case for those who have repented and believed. Peter begins with the lesser and he goes to the greater. Then the judgment on the ungodly and the sinner must be horrific indeed. Or as Luther said about this passage, I strike my beloved that you may see how I treat my enemies. It is an argument from the lesser lesser judgment for the believer to the greater to help us see more clearly that in the death of the son of god when he was condemned in the flesh that there is now hope for the believer and there is a certainty of judgment for the unbeliever by visiting judgment for sin on the cross We witness the unveiling of God's holy will. The cross shows us that God bears patiently with human sin because he is patient towards sinner. He's not ambivalent towards sin, but he is patient with sinners. Friend, God truly does hate injustice. He hates it. Read all throughout the Bible, and you see God standing for those who are oppressed. He stands with those who are the recipients of injustice. He is providing relief and vindication for his people but he often stays his hand. But we also see in Scripture that his patience will not last forever. I want you to turn with me to Peter's second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Look in verse 7. And just be reminded, these people are thinking, why is he being patient now? Why aren't they being dealt with now? Notice what Peter does, and he exhorts A group of Christians, again, he reminds them. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact. Beloved. So he reminds them of the certainty of their judgment. Then he exhorts them, as we've seen throughout 1 Peter... What does he do? Now he comes in with a loving word, beloved. Those loved by God, cherished by God, chosen by God, elect exiles that you are, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Why is he saying that? It feels slow. We're we're here almost 2000 years later. It feels slow. It feels like he's not paying attention. Think of all of the atrocities that have just happened in American history. Add all of those up and think, it's not fair. It's taking a long time. And then add up all of history. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. God is right on time. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. The day is coming sooner than we think when everything is laid bare. We can know a righteous God will judge these things because He saves His children through suffering. For those who trust in Christ... He has stood in their place and received the condemnation that they deserve. He has raised up his Christ and from the grave. They are vindicated in him. And there is grace for all who repent and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Friends, our sins are forgiven in Christ. We're cleansed from guilty consciences. We have hope. Of Heaven, the Gospel Peter tells us is a massive motivator in the presence, and it makes us look forward in hope that for those who persist in oppression though and for the unrighteous, it proclaims god 's justice for us it 's hope there 's hope before us there 's life before us there 's something where we come and we 're comforted, but for the unbeliever, it reminds him god 's justice is coming. Turn from your sin. Because my patience is only for a little time. And one day I will come and I will visit judgment on all of these things. It offers hope and it proclaims judgment at the exact same time. And it frees us, if we're believers in here, from needing to justify ourselves or make all wrong things right because we entrust ourselves to the one who will do that. Our job now is to simply labor to imitate Christ and walk in repentance deeper faith, deeper repentance, and entrusting ourselves. What does verse 19 tell us? Entrusting ourselves in those moments to a faithful creator. Can you imagine how hard that's been for parents this week? Entrusting themselves to a faithful creator? Or what once were young boys and girls, now grown men and women? Entrusting themselves to a faithful creator? But Peter comes alongside them this week and he says, Entrust yourselves to a faithful Creator. All of the sorrows from Buffalo to Texas to across the United States and around the world, entrust yourselves to a faithful Creator. It offers hope, it proclaims justice, and when we ask ourselves, will not a righteous God judge these things? The answer Peter tells us is yes. We're finally in a place where we can see the goodnesses of Peter's teaching. And we're in a place where we can, with David, give praise because God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. We're often told by people around us in our neighborhood, in our community, across our country, that they don't want an angry God of judgment, that this age can't abide that type of teaching anymore, that the types of songs we've sung and scriptures we've read are too harsh for the modern man. But I don't abide that at all. in fact, The reality is you don't buy that at all. And the reality is is that they don't buy that at all. Because when we think of our rage and we think of injustice, the world is looking for someone to come and to make wrong things right. And deep down, we all know and they all know that there has to be someone, some God, who feels indignation at these things that are wrong. Peter tells us there is. God hates sin. God will judge wrong things. God will comfort those who have been oppressed and afflicted. God will redeem his people and he will satisfy them forever. And we know that it would be a greater tragedy if judgment did not begin with the household of God and God never dealt with sinful things if we, because we would be terrified to know that the unrighteousness of our world was left undealt with. In light of the past week, I just want to give out a list of things that are applications for us to think about especially for our members. As we, your pastors, say to you, we repudiate the evil that took place. We hate what occurred. We stand on the side of those who have been victimized. And we just want to say at the outset here as we begin to apply, if that ever applies to you, if it has in the past, if it does now, if it does in the future, we want to help. We want to be more well-equipped so that we can continue to help we would love for you to reach out to us. Perhaps you don't feel comfortable speaking with anybody. You can just email the church at info at church, We would love to get your information to a person that can help you. We would love to walk alongside you. If there's some way that we can help you and encourage you, please know we'd love to do that. And here's just a list of things that we should think of in light of the last week in this passage I think will help us. We must take sin seriously. Temporal judgments upon sin remind us of an eternal judgment in the future. We must call sin what it is. And part of the reason things like the past week have occurred is because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has failed to call sin what it is, sin, and have failed to tell sinners what they must do, repent. And that if they do not repent and they call themselves a believer, they must be disciplined. Discipline is always hard. Read Hebrews 12. It is painful, not pleasant. But for the believer, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And somewhere along the line, in many contexts, churches, pastors, leaders, congregations decided it's too hard to deal with sin, so we're not going to deal with sin. And then when sin occurs, they are ill-equipped to deal with sin, and it can be covered up. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons that we exercise church discipline as members of this church because we recognize that nobody, including the senior pastor standing in this pulpit right now, is above the discipline of the church. We must deal with sin and call it what it is. And when it is in our midst, discipline sin. Because somewhere along the line, there were people, if you read those reports, who were able to say, well, that wasn't really sin. That, re- that wasn't really that. It, it was something else. And the church said, well, because it wasn't that, we're not going to deal with it. We must deal with sin we must stand against it, and we must discipline it, especially in the lives of those who call themselves believers. Second, and this is why I'm saying this is a different kind of sermon and invite you back, we thought it would be good to start here. We need to know what a pastor is. Come back next week as we turn our attention to chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which will be a more normal expositional type of sermon. But the reason for that is, is that part of the reason we've had a hard time here is that not only have we not dealt with sin, but we've been looking for the wrong thing in a pastor. But if you just glance in 1 Peter chapter 5, and if you are one of those people, like Pastor Nick said earlier, who have mistaken these people who call themselves shepherds for shepherds, but then you look at what Peter says, they have not been those who have exercised oversight without compulsion, doing it willingly, not for shameful gain, not domineering over those in their charge. The problem is, is that we've looked for communicators, we look for people who can build churches, and we have not looked for pastors. People who care for the sheep and give their lives for the sheep and love the sheep at the expense of themselves. They're not preying upon the sheep, but they are giving everything for the sheep. We want to equip you to know what we're supposed to be so that if that ever characterizes us, in the unfortunate circumstance, you would fire us immediately. We give you permission to fire every unfaithful pastor. To remove them from the pulpit and to fire them from the church. Even as you seek to love them and restore them. We must know what we're looking for. Third, we must be reminded that judgment of sin upon God's household as it takes place here reminds us that no one gets away with sin. Just very... Quickly, as we think of a passage like Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the scripture says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. As we remind ourselves of passages like that, we see that God's judgment is personal, it is certain, it is final. It is horrible. It is right. Because he who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. No one gets away with sin in this life. No one manages sin. Sin manages people. Brothers and sisters, all of us here today, perhaps you're here and you think, I can do this. Let me tell you what all of the pastors of this church would tell you. No, you can't. You cannot manage sin by yourself. You cannot deal with sin by yourself. God sent his son to die on the cross so that if you repent of your sins and trust it in Christ, you might be forgiven of it. If you want to learn more about that, we invite you to believe it and invite you to come speak with one of us. But believer, you believed in that. You were never meant to manage sin by yourself. God has given you the church, which is why we say over and over again, that there's a moral obligation to participate in the life of the church and invite believers into helping you deal with sin and get it out of your life. Because I can assure you that for every single person in that report, there was not a beginning of ministry that started something like this. I cannot wait for the day that my name is on a guidepost report. They began thinking, it's not that big a deal no one sees do I really need to confess it and then at some point it became kind of big and they felt they could no longer confess it and they got really good at hiding it and then probably along the way there were some good things that happened that made them think it's not that bad somebody just got saved and then there was the report Just like nobody gets married thinking, I do, and I can't wait till I get divorced. None of those people started ministry thinking, yeah, I want to ruin my life and destroy all of the people around me. Sin takes root and gives birth to wickedness, and because we're afraid, we hide it. But the beauty of the gospel is you don't have to hide it. God sees it. He invites you to bring all of your sin, all of your worst X rated moments into his presence. And in those moments, when you bring all of that sin to him and confess it, he forgives you. He forgives you. You might experience the consequences of your sin, but in the mercy of God, he forgives the repentant. We must deal with sin. Church, we encourage you, we challenge you. We must be a people who deal with sin. We must know what a pastor is and what to look for. So that we are not confused and think that these people represent God's true shepherds, the people that He's raised up to serve His church. Because as we see, they're servants. And we must be reminded that the certainty of God's judgment not only tells us no one's getting away with sin, but it offers hope. Hope to us who turn away from sin and believe. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us today because it is a heavy day. Our hearts are glad and they are sad. We rejoice and we mourn. And we thank you that those two things go together in the scripture and remind us that You can be genuinely Christian and be grieving, sad, lamenting, groaning, broken. Father, we pray that we would feel to the degree that we are able and can the pain of many of our brothers and sisters around the state, across the country, around the world who have suffered at the hands of those who have victimized them. And we pray that we would understand to the degree that we can something of the pain of those who lost loved ones to senseless tragedy. And we pray that you would put people in their life that would share the truth of the gospel with them, that perhaps somehow in the mysterious providence that you have ordained for our lives and all of history, that you would use these terrors and atrocities as a catalyst for conversion. That people who have not yet believed would believe. People who have heard but not repented would repent. People who have not heard would hear and trust in Christ. People who thought that all was well would realize that all is not well with the world. And that they would begin to long for another and find that there is mercy in Christ. Father, we ask that you would meet these people with the gospel. Father, we pray for our own church that you'd protect us from sin. I confess that my sin is wicked as as we do every week as brothers and sisters. We come and we remind ourselves we are sinners. We pray that we would be quick to confess our sin and quick to lean on one another and quick to rely on one another and that you might protect us from ourselves, from our own sin, that we would walk in repentance, that we would have friends that would not flinch when we bring our sin to them and that they might help us walk away from it and toward Christ. We pray that you would do it for the safety of all that are here present today, for all that you might send to Christ Church Westchester, for the witness of your church here in this community, we pray so that there might be a revival, so there might be a pouring out of your spirit. We pray so that Jesus Christ might be exalted so that it might never be said of us that we were a people who were close to God with our lips but far from Him in our hearts and actions. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.